What we are seeing that not only are fossil fuel companies not being held accountable for their role in causing the energy crisis through decades of climate misinformation, delay, but they're also being put into the driving seat as the experts to lead the response. It's mind-blowing that the decision-makers right at this moment are thinking of these partners as impartial experts. Would you ask Marboro for advice on how to quit smoking? This is essentially what has been happening in climate policy at the European level, while energy companies are seen as experts in the field. The climate crisis is one of the biggest challenges of our times, and yet we see big polluters and fossil fuel lobby taking the driver's seat on European climate legislation. While Europeans have been feeling the pinch of unmanageable energy bills and an ever-increasing cost of living, the fossil fuel giants hit the jackpot, recording unprecedented profits. Just in 2022, big energy companies reported nearly 200 billion in profits combined. Can you picture that? That means that in half a second, they made more than the average monthly salary in the EU. For decades, fossil fuel lobbies have been playing an active role in spreading disinformation about climate change and delaying climate action. But how did they get so far without being held accountable? From the left in the European Parliament, I am Marcella Via, and this is Look Left, EU Politics Under the Lens. This episode is about the impact of the fossil fuel lobby on EU climate policy and the need to kick big polluters out of politics. So, to give you a better understanding on how the fossil fuel lobby operates to influence EU decision-making and how this has an impact on people's lives, you will hear Marta Myers. She's a climate justice campaigner and researcher from Corporate Europe Observatory. But that's not all, right, David? Yeah, I spoke to Sylvia Modig, a left MEP and our coordinator on the Environment Committee, and she explained what the EU is doing to tackle the climate crisis, what the implications of the climate emergency are, and what the next steps are to achieve a social and sustainable green transition. I think it's very important. And uh, before starting, uh, let's look at what has been happening across the streets of Europe this month. So as we are in May, you can easily take a guess. Yeah, International Workers' Day was uh, May the 1st, as it is every year. And that's a big moment uh, for our group. Our theme for this year was uh, workers are rising. So that was following on from the series of protests we've been seeing across different European countries and indeed around the world over the last year. And those have been basically responses to uh, rising inflation, the skyrocketing cost of living and the energy crisis. And all that's happening while wages are pretty stagnant. And we heard from a protest that uh, took place in Berlin this May the 1st. So I think it's very important to continue commemorating uh, this day, which is a milestone for uh, workers' rights. But uh, it's also important to keep the fight up and uh, to fight for those rights that uh, today are in danger across the EU. Yeah, one of the big ones going on right now in Brussels is the uh, Platform Workers Directive kind of lobbying battle that's been going on between platform workers and trade unions and the big corporate, uh, big tech lobbies on the other side. So obviously our last episode was about that issue, but it continues. The issue has come to a head recently, uh, this week, as platform workers themselves wrote an open letter to all of Europe's uh, labour ministers 
demanding protection of their rights and dignity ahead of an important meeting of Labour ministers on the 12th of June. Exactly. And also at the left, we are keeping more fights for worker rights alive, such as the Asbestos Free Europe Directive. Yeah. In April, the European Parliament voted in favour of strengthening workers' protection against asbestos. So now the Parliament's in negotiations with the European Council and the representatives of the member states. That process is known as the trilogues, to use a bit of EU jargon. But Parliament has a really strong position, a really strong negotiating mandate. So we think that'll be crucial to achieve legislation that protects workers. Just, for example, asbestos is is banned, but it still kills about 90,000 people in Europe every year and is responsible for more than half of occupational lung cancers. So it's a massive issue. It's really, really serious. It's literally life or death. Yes, I think it's unacceptable that uh, for such a long time uh, asbestos has been present in the EU and gladly now it's banned. So this is what people are calling out loud across the streets, but also let's see what has been happening in the European Parliament. The Growth and Stability Pact could be described as the victory of uh, neoliberal economic Mm -hmm. policies. And with the Growth and Stability Pact, what we had was exactly the opposite extremely low growth in the European Union, a growing inequality in income distribution and economic crisis one after the other, and usually more serious than they had to be. I would say the most spectacular example was the uh, financial crisis and its consequences. But for the most part, the Growth and Stability Pact has quite paradoxically been a cinnamon for lack of growth and lack of stability. Yeah, that was our MEP, Portuguese MEP, José Guzmão, who was explaining about the EU Stability and Growth Pact and the recent reforms announced by the European Commission. And the Stability and Growth Pact is uh, one of the most controversial policies that uh, is happening uh, at uh, the European level. So what is it about, actually? Basically, it limits government's ability to tackle economic crises. That's one of the effects of it. It includes limits on budget deficits and limits on debt to GDP ratios. So it's a bit technical, but basically what it does is it undemocratically limits uh, government's abilities to spend when they need to spend. And uh, what you're saying is basically that uh, at a time of crisis, governments cannot spend on uh, public policies and social security? Yeah, so they suspended it, uh, for instance, during the pandemic because it was seen as, you know, restraining governments. And what we were looking for is for that suspension not just to be temporary, but for it to be permanent because the pact is a failed treaty. It was responsible for some of the worst uh, cuts to public services and welfare systems over the last 10, 15 years in particular, since the major economic crisis in the late 2000s. And we need austerity policy to end. We need it to be uh, consigned to the dustbin of European history. And the Commission's recent proposal doesn't do that. It's austerity with another name. Yeah, it's, um, we really need to work on that and uh, to have policies that uh, benefit workers. I wonder why we have these rules if then those who pay the higher price are EU citizens. I think that's probably linked to what we're going to talk about next, which is the influence of corporate lobbyists in Brussels. This is what has been happening in May on the streets of Europe and in the European Parliament. And now we can move on to the issue that brings us together today. How to achieve a climate policy that listens to the voices of civil society, representatives rather than big polluters. 
Before digging deep into the issue, it is important to unpack how EU climate policy is shaped, whose voices are listened to and whose are being silenced from the debate. And this is why I spoke with uh, Marta Myers from Corporate Europe Observatory, an NGO which works to shed light on the obscure work of corporate power in Europe. So, Marta, thank you very much for joining us today. Really great to be here. Thank you. So, Marta, you are here with us to talk about the influence of the fossil fuel lobby in EU climate policy. But before starting, could you briefly introduce yourself? I'm a climate justice campaigner and researcher from Corporate Europe Observatory, and we work to expose and challenge corporate power in the EU. And my work specifically looks to unmask the privileged access and influence fossil fuel companies have over our decision makers. We aim to raise the alarm of fossil fuel companies' abuse of power alongside allies in the Fossil Free Politics Coalition to advocate for concrete solutions to restrict this political chokehold we have over our system. Before going deep into the role of fossil fuel lobby in EU negotiations and climate talks, maybe we can talk through some examples of real life. And for instance, this winter European citizens saw how climate and energy are two sides of the same coins, in fact. And uh, I believe what happened this winter could be a great kickoff to our conversation. So, Marta, in what way has the fossil fuel lobby impacted people's lives? So we've seen in 2022, Shell got 36.2 billion euros in profit, whilst nine in 10 Europeans were struggling to pay their energy bills. Total got 34.3 billion in profit, whilst one in 10 Europeans were seen as skipping meals. Exxon, $55.7 billion in profit, whilst we've seen the worst inflation crisis reported in 50 years. So I could go on juxtaposing the profits, the profiteering from these companies and the social cost that these have had. Yet at the same time, We saw in 2022, fossil fuel giants had over 100 meetings with von der Leyen from the European Commission and her team. And that's one every other day in 2022 as discussing the energy crisis response. And I think maybe the most drastic example of the lobbying influence in response to the energy crisis was the setting up of the Energy Platform Industry Advisory Group which my colleague did fantastic research into looking who was part of this advisory group, who was part of the response to the energy crisis to make sure it didn't happen again. And it was 16 fossil fuel company executives. We're talking Shell, Exxon, Total. And there wasn't a single trade union representative or climate group or anti-poverty network. It's mind-blowing that the decision-makers right at this moment are thinking of these partners as impartial experts. Yeah, that's actually a green picture that clearly shows who is benefiting from uh, all of this. Tackling the climate crisis is one of uh, our society's biggest challenges, and both civil society and scientists are warning loud and clear that we are running short of time to take effective actions. So how did we end up in this situation, and who is responsible for the climate crisis? There's no doubt that fossil fuel lobbyists have played a really powerful role in delaying climate action and spreading climate misinformation for decades. We have extensive evidence of the intensive lobbying, millions and millions put into this from big fossil fuel companies. We saw, obviously, from the 1970s, 80s, fossil fuel companies talking about the science being up for debate. Their debates have matured 
And now they are perceiving and positioning themselves in the last decade or so as the experts and advisors in the energy transition, which is, in my opinion, just as dangerous. It's absolutely clear that the political stronghold and chokehold that these companies have on our political system has caused unprecedented damage to addressing the climate crisis. Yeah, and uh, Mata, you work at the Corporate Europe Observatory, so you actually really dig into the work of corporate power. Could you tell us a little bit more about what are the tricks and tactics that the fossil fuel lobby is using? They are offering a more nuanced way of achieving the same goal through false solutions to address the climate crisis, which is to keep power and profit in their hands at all costs, social costs, environmental costs. They only will advocate for technocratic capitalist fixers, which continue their dominance on the system. And, you know, some examples are CCS, carbon capture and storage, which allows them to just carry on polluting. We've also seen the great hydrogen hoax that they completely fail to acknowledge that the amount of energy it takes to generate hydrogen and the fact that 1% of hydrogen production right now is from renewables. We see the obsession with net zero from their perspective and the discussion around offsetting. Oh, we can pollute as much as we want as long as we are offsetting our emissions. And we know that in reality, this is either A, not happening, or B, is resulting in land grabbing for instance, from indigenous communities and nations. Marta, I hear you talking about the hydrogen as a magical solution that is pushed by lobbies. But I also think how the commission is also pushing for this kind of renewables that when you look closer, it can sometimes even not be as green as it seems. So on a scale from one to 10, how influential would you say fossil fuel lobby is in new climate policy and why so? Well, if you look at the last year in 2022 and the impact they had on the energy crisis response and with the Repower EU strategy, I would say 10 out of 10. The big kind of five energy companies spent over 20 million euros influencing decision makers last year. Shell invested an additional third in 2022 to increase their lobbying power. And we've seen them really heavily influence and decay, basically, the EU Green Deal targets and the proposals, which obviously had huge potential towards social and climate justice. Now we're seeing also the Brussels bubble red flag around the electricity market directive, which has a real potential to address some of the underlying injustices and prejudices and discriminations in our energy model and our energy system. And again, they're influencing this extremely heavily. Within 2015 to 2021, there were over 70 cases of revolving door where the public sector, so EU institutions, and the six big energy firms and their lobbying groups were basically doing second jobs. They were just talking to themselves in the room. We have to look at also how these institutions are interweaving in these revolving door cases with the energy companies as well. So it's clear that uh, these companies has links to European institutions and also an impact on the way people live, basically. And I would like to ask you, Marta, do NGOs or civil society organizations have uh, the same privilege? Are they equally listened to? Absolutely not. We often hear from politicians the excuse when we challenge their kind of over-reliance on fossil fuel companies. They give us the reason, we talk to everyone. And this is about bias, about balance. We only have to take the energy platform advisory group I mentioned. 
hardly any representatives from any social justice or civil society group whatsoever. The most progressive solutions to address the climate and the social crises we face today are coming from these frontline groups. And the most resilient, progressive and innovative solutions to end the myriad of crises caused by our fossil fuel dependency. We've seen extremely progressive ideas towards tax justice and tax reform for these companies, including discussions on permanent ecological footprint taxes, where the polluter pays, for instance, and discussions on complete phase out of fossil fuel subsidies, which is the bare minimum. And right now, it doesn't even seem like our decision makers are willing to have that discussion. And what do you think it needs to change at an EU policy making level to limit the influence of a fossil fuel lobby in climate policy? So as Fossil Free Politics Coalition, which brings together climate justice NGOs as well as social allies and trade unions who work alongside us, we're calling for a few clear demands here. The first one is a public hearing by European institutions to hold fossil fuel companies to account for their role in fueling and profiting the cost of living crisis. The second is to have a conflict of interest framework so that this restricts fossil fuel companies' access to climate and energy policy so that these policies are made entirely in the public interest. And the third one is to revoke fossil fuel companies' access to EU institutions through the immediate removal of their lobbying badges. And the final one is stop having this unprecedented access and viewing fossil fuel companies as experts. But then also, what's the other side of that coin? It's people in get the solutions from those that do not have invested interest in the profit. Yeah, I think you are totally right on this point. And lastly, to go beyond fossil fuel lobby, what could be the future solutions to challenge their power? We really need to shift power literally out of fossil fuel giants' hands and ensure that energy is a public good, you know, and is redistributed into the hands of the people. They have managed, again, through their tactics to vilify and dismiss the idea of public ownership in political discourse so far. However, you know, this is truly one of the only ways to address the root cause of the energy and the climate crises we are in. And above all, it allows us to think about energy as a human right. This is an increasing public demand. We can't leave this up to the hands of fossil fuel companies because the energy crisis has shown that they will always put profit before people and planet. Totally. I think these are the best words to close this interview. Marta, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we just uh, heard from Marta about the power that fossil fuel lobby holds when it comes to influencing decision makers. And honestly, I think it's unbelievable that those that are responsible for the crisis are not only not held accountable, but they are also comfortably sitting at uh, climate talks. What do you think about it, uh, David? Yeah, they very much are in the centre of uh, climate talks. And as Martha was saying, uh, we need to get them out of the meeting rooms and out of the conferences where negotiations are happening on that topic. As a group, we've been pushing for revoking the access for fossil fuel companies to EU institutions here in uh, Brussels, taking away their lobby badges, and developing a conflict of interest framework across the institutions on climate and energy policy. So it would be something similar to what was done on tobacco to stop tobacco companies influencing and negotiations on restricting tobacco products. So, yeah, that's the model. Yeah, and I think it's also very smart to link what is happening with the fossil fuel lobbying with the work of the 
tobacco lobby in the EU because in the end uh, we have a sort of a positive story because now they are uh, very much limited in uh, how they influence decision makers. And also I'm glad that uh, when you talk, you also picked up some uh, lines from uh, what uh, civil society is advocating for. So we are uh, echoing uh, their demands. Yeah, and this has become like, uh, as well as in EU institutions, become a massive thing at the UN more generally. So we have these annual conference of parties talks, the COP talks. We're up to number 28, which will be at the end of the year in uh, Dubai. And at the last one where we were present, there were over 636 lobbyists were counted from the oil and gas industries registered officially to attend the COP27 in uh, Egypt. So we see the power, the ability, the presence that they have, and we need to limit their interference for the sake of the planet. So I think it's good that we see the left echoing the demands of civil society. So maybe it's also important to see what the European Parliament is doing to tackle one of the major crises of our times. Yeah, so I sat down recently in Strasbourg, actually, with the Finnish MEP, Silvia Modig, to talk about that very issue. Let's have a listen. At the decisions made so far, we are going towards almost three degrees warming, which of course will be catastrophic in its consequences. But the main point with the Fit for 55 work we've been doing in the parliament is that now it looks like we are achieving our 2030 goal. That doesn't mean yet that we would be on the Paris track. That doesn't mean that we're on the track on climate neutrality, but they're both possible for us. So without us reaching the 2030 target, the next parliament would haven't had any chance anymore because then time would be running out for them to change the curve. Um, yeah, so Sylvia gave us a quick overview of uh, where EU policy is right now on this issue. And then I asked her more on which sectors uh, are responsible. Emissions, emissions, emissions. And that is the thing that when you talk about compensation, you talk about carbon capture. Yes, this is all good, but it all starts with emissions. And then when you look at the sectors, which is the biggest ones, of course, energy is the biggest sector. Then you have transport, you have housing and you have food. And these are the elements where the biggest set of emissions come from. So the biggest sets of emissions come from energy, food, housing, transport, it's basically all the sectors that features in people's daily lives. Exactly. And inaction uh, comes with a very high price for those very people and their daily lives. The estimate from the UN is that 3 billion people will be severely affected by this okay. in the coming decade if we don't change the course strongly. So that's almost all of us. Yeah, and no surprises here. Uh, not everyone would be equally affected. And of course, then when you're wealthy, you have more options. Let's say the price of energy goes up, you have more possibilities than the poorer households have. So the most vulnerable will be hit the most. Yeah, and you only have to look around yourself pretty much wherever you are in the world to see the impact of climate change already. First, you must always remember that it's not only about the emissions and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's also about the biodiversity. All mm. this has to be in a balance so that the biodiversity can protect us. Because the stronger the biodiversity is, the better is our planet's resilience to this inevitable change that's happening. So, David, what could happen if the European Union continues to listen to fossil fuel lobbies rather than civil society? That's what I asked Sylvia, and the situation is a bit grim. It's also important for people to picture what a three or four or five degree warming would actually look like. Well, 
if you think about your salary or your taxes, 1% isn't so much in either way. But when you think about global warming, 1% is huge. The difference in the impacts with, let's say, 1.5% and 2.5%, it's huge the difference. And therefore, it's really important that we keep it under 2, because that is what science is telling us, that between 1.5 and 2 degrees, there is still a safe zone where we can live with mitigation methods. Okay. But if we go beyond 2 degrees, that will mean hundreds of millions of people having to go on the move because they cannot anymore sustain themselves where they used to live. Yeah, that's why activists, campaigners, politicians talk about the climate emergency or the climate catastrophe that we're facing. Those words better describe how serious the situation is. So we heard from Marta the demands of civil society, but also the votes and debates that Syria has been leading for the left. So what needs to improve at the EU policy level to more effectively address the climate crisis? All wisdom starts with acknowledging the facts. So that's point one. Take the targets from the science. The science tells us where the percentage is and the year should be. Let's accept the fact our target levels are still below the scientific advice. So that's the first problem. But then the second problem is that even those targets that we have when we try to come up with legislation to achieve them, especially in this house, it's so clear how much the lobbying affects. And of course, as Marta was saying earlier, it's a matter of power. So I asked Sylvia for her take on the influence of the fossil fuels lobby. The fossil lobby is huge. It is completely too big and it has a much too strong voice here. Let's be honest, we know that a lot of things in politics are negotiated much before they reach, let's say, the plenary of the European Parliament. So a lot of things are decided before they come to the public sphere and the public discussion. And to me, it looks like the lobbyists are able to get into those tables where the initial decisions are made, but the NGOs and the civil society is not. One example of the craziest lobbying that has gotten its way all the way to the plenary vote, when we were voting about the CAP, our common agricultural policy, and the subsidies we give to farmers. We voted in the plenary on an amendment which was straight from a lobbyist paper because I have gotten that same paper from that same lobbyist. So the next legislature, they have to start right away working on the 2040 targets. But if we look at now the substance of our decisions made in the Fit for 55, it's screaming in loud capital letters that social justiceness is not secured. Mm. We, for example, broadened the scope of the ETS, the emission trading system, into housing, which means directly into the pocket of also the vulnerable households who already are struggling with the high energy prices and the high living costs. So I think that the next step for this parliament is really to tackle the social justiceness and, and ensure that we keep everybody on board in this transition. That is the next big step and that is where we lack action. Yeah, it was uh, so interesting chatting to uh, Sylvia about uh, that and I think kicking uh, the big polluters out of climate talks and our institutions won't be easy. But she's a great parliamentarian and a great legislator and uh, I think we're making some kind of progress. Thanks, David. So we will take a close look at how things move on in the European Parliament and if we finally manage to kick the fossil fuel lobby out of the EU climate policy. Yeah, I hope we can. Thanks, Marcella. Thank you.
And that was it for the second episode of Look Left, a podcast from the left in the European Parliament. Let us know what you think about this episode and feel free to reach out to us. We are always happy to receive your comments and questions. A big thank to our editor, Maria Dios from Bulle Media. Sound design and mixing are by Jeremy Bouquet. And until the next episode, look left.